Thank you very much indeed, um, Simon. From uh, floods to droughts, so switch your heads to the other extreme of the um, hydrological spectrum. Um, there's a, a, a question here, uh, which unfortunately I'm not going to answer, which um, in a sense is the point I'm trying to make, um, because given the importance of the Thames Basin and the Thames Water Resource, one would expect us to be able to answer that question, um, at least approximately. Um, but I'd say that we're inching towards doing so, but um, there isn't a straight answer to what the risks, so broadly speaking, what the probability and what the consequences of a damaging drought or of some distribution of damaging droughts might be in the Thames. So I'm not going to answer the question, um, but what I am going to talk about is methodology, so how one might go about answering that question. Um, I acknowledge here Eduardo Borgomeo, who's been working with me um, on this methodology um, for, a, uh, for, for a little while, um, with some support from EPSRC, the Environment Agency, and Thames Water. Um, I'm not sure whether this methodology is actually going to pass all of John's tests, to be honest. Um, in particular, this might be the sort of thing which um, some practitioners uh, might have a, uh, uh, some resistance to, let's say, because, well, let me come clean up front, it involves doing quite large numbers of simulations. Um, but actually, I think that's quite important, and I think it's perhaps not quite as difficult um, as it used to be or as it should be that makes any sense at all. Um, anyway, uh, first to set the scene, um, so we have a converging set of uh, drivers, pressures within the Thames Basin. This uh, is the Environment Agency map of over-abstracted catchments, so this is where more water is being taken out of the environment than the Environment Agency um, think is, uh, is good for the natural environment. Yet, at the same time, um, we have an uh, upward trajectory of population in the southeast of the country. Um, per capita demand, which is actually gently um, drifting downwards, but this is the uh, histogram of demand of the UK compared to the rest of Europe. I'm not entirely sure what they do in Romania. Um, but uh, Britain isn't, a, uh, it isn't doing um, particularly well in terms of per capita demand, and actually per capita demand in, uh, in London is higher than the national average. And then on top of that, we have climate change, um, which, which John was talking about. Um, and so this is uh, looking at summer precipitation. Uh, one gets a very wide range of... Uh, climate change scenarios from UK CPO9, and this is what I come to next, that each of the panels in this um, figure have quite considerable uncertainties associated with them. So we go from one climate scenario actually to a full distribution of climate scenarios, um, and as far as precipitation is concerned, um, some of them go one way and some of them go the other way. So we're not even... Um, all that sure about what the direction of change is with respect to precipitation. 
We do, I think, know with some confidence what direction um, uh, evapotranspiration is, is going to be going in because we're more confident that the temperatures are, are, are going up. But even so, um, a, a great deal of uncertainty around the hydrology, um, a great deal of uncertainty around um, the uh, per capita demand. This, there are more recent um, numbers than this. This actually came out of a paper by Gareth Walker um, looking at um, extracting the per capita demand projections for a number of different water companies. There's a new version of this in their new um, draft water resource management plans which came out during the course of this year. But even so, we can see, and we've done some work on this in the uh, Adaptation Subcommittee of the Climate Change Committee, um, there are quite different um, plans, aspirations with respect to um, what uh, will be achieved um, in terms of demand reduction. Um, and that ripples directly through um, into the demand forecasts. Um, and uh, what's happening with population is also quite uncertain. I've skipped from southeast to uh, to nationally, These are, this is some work which has been done um, with uh, Leeds University. Um, and uh, so where things go in terms of national population um, is by no means clear. We know uh, pretty well uh, what's happening uh, with mortality, um, uh, to a pretty good extent um, what's happening to fertility, though there are some surprises there. Any of you who are at Danny Dorling's lecture will have heard about the cascade of baby booms through the generations doing interesting things um, and uh, we're uh, much less clear about what the prospects are with respect to immigration. So population is an uncertainty and it's a particular uncertainty in the southeast and also the, the, the sensitivity of the environment is an uncertainty. So what we know about the sensitivity of species to um, drought, that's a, a river channel there um, which is looking pretty um, dry, but actually how species respond to those situations or on the other hand what the environmental flows to sustain um, healthy habitats should be um, is an inexact science to say the least. So we're in a situation of decision-making um, under a whole series of different sources of uncertainty, which was the point which um, John was making as well. And so how do we make these decisions at the moment? Um, and this uh, actually looks a bit linear compared to John's um, cyclic loops of decision-making. Um, but we put together uh, some... Uh, projections of water availability. We superimpose some climate change scenarios on that to come up with supply-demand forecasts, um, have a look at what the margin between supply and demand might be, um, and then appraise some options to try and satisfy that margin and publish that in a water resource management planning document. And uh, I and uh, a number of other people have been arguing, and I think John may have said broadly the same thing in the context of flooding, um, is that that's beginning to look like a method which isn't particularly fit for purpose, given the difficult situation we find ourselves in with respect to converging drivers of water scarcity, 
given the um, endemic uncertainties associated with a number of different very important factors which um, influence that type of decision. And there are a few other kind of techie reasons which John also hinted at as to why a method which looks a bit like that um, isn't uh, really going to work for us in a very convenient way. One is, and the shorthand here is covariance, is that a number of the factors which uh, uh, influence this decision in rather critical ways are correlated to one another. Um, so what happens to per capita demand is to some extent correlated with the climate. Um, what happens to the water resource uh, availability is correlated with the climate. Um, and so we need to take those correlations into account um, if we're going to get decent risk estimates. In the middle of this, there is this nice kind of convenient intuitive idea of what the margin between supply and demand should be, so what the headroom should be. This is the kind of safe operating margin, and it's, it, it, it's uh, been a kind of fundamental of water resources planning since, um, uh, well, since at least the 1950s. Um, but the, I think it's, it's a concept which is beginning to look pretty flaky, really. Um, because it's an abstract quantity, we can't actually measure what this headroom is, what the margin between supply and demand is. And it doesn't bear any relationship to, or any direct or measurable relationship. There is some kind of abstract relationship to actually the, the outcomes which we value. What are we trying to manage for? Or on the other hand, what are the, uh, the, the risks which we're trying to manage to avoid or to mitigate? Um, and uh, those risks are the risks of water scarcity. Um, so uh, having imposed on us shortages of, of, of different types, risks to the environment, risks um, of having to ramp down the output of power stations, risks to agricultural systems in terms of not having the, the water that farmers need. And I think we need to be much more explicit about what the probability and consequences of those types of events are, rather than thinking in terms of a, an, an abstract quantity like the headroom. Also, though some step, useful steps are being made in this direction, but this was very much the point John was making as well, is we need to be thinking much more in terms of appraising strategies in terms of their robustness under a wide range of possible futures. Um, and as I say, the Environment Agency has encouraged water companies to do more of this in the, the latest round of their plans, but I, I think it's basically trying to adapt a, a, a methodology which isn't up to the job. And where we need to be getting towards, and again John hinted at this also, is uh, looking at the way in which we can plot pathways through time with decision points in them which and simulate the way in which we adapt to uncertainties as they materialise. So we need methodology which enables us to plot our way through possible futures and simulate the way in which we, we still have choices as we go forwards and we need to, 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 to understand what the, what the outcomes of keeping options open um, in the short term might be. So that, uh, I, I'll probably end up repeating myself here, so let me um, uh, just restate this quickly. That 
as I say, we need to begin with what are the outcomes that we value here? Um, so what is it about the water resource system that's important to us um, in terms of a secure supply of water resources, water for agriculture, industry, for the environment, um, and let's think more explicitly about the way in which we trade those things off. Um, then the next step is to think, well, how do the different sources of uncertainty influence the probabilities of those outcomes occurring? And that brings perhaps to the, to, to the most um, uh, conceptual, but I think quite important part of this talk, um, is thinking in terms of two layers of uncertainty in this decision problem. One is that um, uh, the, um, the natural environment is variable, um, and so we think of events like droughts and indeed floods occurring randomly in an unpredictable way, and that's, that's the way um, nature is. There's, of course, some philosophical arguments as to whether nature is or is not um, uh, stochastic in that way, and in fact, um, if you drill down into it, of course it's not, unless perhaps you get to some kind of quantum level, but let's not go there this afternoon. Um, for the time being, we, we, we accept for, 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 for the purposes of discussion that there is some random variability in the environment, and which, because there are limits to what we can predict. Um, and so we want to incorporate that layer of random variability within our decision-making. And that's what all of flood frequency analysis, drought frequency analysis has always been about. But then on top of that is... Uh, the fact that we are actually uncertain about uh, the models that we use, about what the future holds, about some of these socioeconomic things which are changing as well. And so we want to be explicit about that layer of uncertainty as well. That's quite different to Nietzsche's natural variability. That's to do with our lack of knowledge um, about the systems we're trying to analyse and about what the future holds. So that, that's the epistemic uncertainty. And we need methodology which can deal with both of those sources of uncertainty. Then we need to think through, well, in a given scenario, so for a given realisation of this epistemic uncertainty, if we knew what the future held, uh, up to at least the level of what the natural variability is, what would we then do about it? So we need some kind of gaming situation in which we can think through scenarios and think through the way in which we would cope with different situations. Um, and uh, having thought through what the options are and how they would play out, of course, there's always going to be residual risks, residual downsides, so we need to be explicit about analysing what those residual risks and uh, downsides, what the, what the outcomes would be. Um, and how different management actions would, would alter the likelihood of those outcomes. So, in effect, that then provides us uh, with the evidence to at least understand the impacts, the trade-offs. We then need to bring in what are the costs into the, the, the decision-making um, situation as well. So, that kind of sketches out a decision-making process um, let me very quickly go through an instance which we've been working on which illustrates this in, in, in the Thames. Um, so a, a, a really uh, rather 
simplified water balance model of what's going on in the Thames, but um, I think that is, was underlined by what John was saying, that, it's, um, that for these decision-making problems, it often helps to have a relatively simple system conceptualization because that then provides you the platform which everyone understands to, uh, to, to start playing the games on. So we have some water, which turns into some rainfall, which turns into some flow. Uh, we have some upstream abstractions for industry, for agriculture. We have some, uh, some municipal abstractions, which go into a, one large abstract reservoir. Um, and we make some decisions as the, 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 the rainfall evolves, depending on what's in the reservoir. Um, and this... Uh, is uh, an illustration of how we deal with those two types of uncertainty in thinking about the future. Um, yeah. Oops, no, that's not what I wanted. Something which would help me to point. Ah, yeah. So, um, you'll recall that we had um, natural variability. That means that these lines here, uh, this is annual precipitation, uh, wobble around in a kind of random way. That's natural variability for you. Um, and we summarize that in some probability density function, which for today, um, give or take a bit, um, and modulo uh, assumptions about stationarity at the moment, um, we can estimate what that probability distribution is. Then as we go into the future, we have increasing epistemic uncertainty. So these, we, we can plot alternative realizations of the future. These might be alternative scenarios from different climate models. And our probability distributions um, spread out for three different scenarios. Um, and they also spread out, actually, in the sense that um, the variance increases as well. So we're saying that we're expecting this climate to have um, uh, to be uh, more extreme, but significantly um, also that our, our climate scenarios are telling us different and sometimes conflicting things, and we need to incorporate that in the decision-making. From the climate, we then go to what's going on in the water resource system. We need to simulate the way in which we manage it. This is the way in which Thames Water um, controls their uh, their reservoirs and imposes restrictions um, depending on how much water there is in the reservoir. So these are hosepipe bands and things more serious than that. And we'll see a little bit more than that. In fact, about that, here it is. So these are the different levels of restrictions. So the, uh, the less water they've got, the more severe a restriction is imposed. Um, and these are the types of restrictions which are words which, at least at this level, here um, uh, may well be familiar to you. And interestingly enough, this is what then happens with respect to demand reduction. So the intention of imposing, these are an adaptive management strategy in their own right. They're, so, they're supposed to reduce demand and save water. And this is the amount by which they, they, they do actually um, save water. Um, so they help you uh, delay getting into a worse restriction, but they don't, certainly don't prevent it. And so one then um, goes through some process of simulating things like how much is in the reservoir. So here the reservoir is full and it dips off. Here's how much water is being taken out of the river. Um, and that's limited depending on how much uh, flow there is um, 
in the uh, in in the river. So here's the flow in the river, though this has actually been flattened off. It does do go right up there, but we thought that would complicate matters. And this is an instance of the uh, the 1976 drought um, of what happened um, down there. So you can see that as the reservoir goes down, the amount of uh, and the flow goes down, the amount of abstraction that's allowed goes right down as well. Um, and it takes a while for the uh, for the storage to come back up again. Um, so, what, do, what information does doing that type of analysis actually provide us? And what it provides us it with is um, for each different realisation of the future, we do lots and lots of simulations of the natural variability, and that gives an, an estimate of how frequently would we expect to <coughs> exceed, say, one of the, tar the target for that type of restriction. So this is a water shortage of severity three. There's a target that that should happen no more frequently than one in 20 years. Um, this is what we've uh, got at the moment. Um, this is uh, what might happen in the 2020s and 2050s. And we see that as, the, as we go into the future, um, the tail of this distribution pushes out beyond the target frequency. So we're saying that there is some probability um, that is increasing that we will uh, fail to meet our target for the security of supply to customers. Here's another way of looking at it. So now we've gone from, from uh, histograms to cumulative distributions. Um, so this is the, um, the, the, the cumulative probability that uh, some uh, level of frequency uh, will um, uh, will occur at and so we're saying up here these are these are very these are level three bands which are happening really quite frequently now so this is um, uh, an annual probability of point 0.1 once in 10 years this is um, uh, 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 0.05 um, once in 20 so this is where we are at the moment so this happens at the moment um, with one minus this number, so a probability of about 0.1. As we go into the future, um, the likelihood of not hitting that target is, is going up. So the risk of failing to, uh, to, to hit our target for, for that frequency of ban is, is going up. And also the range of, of how bad things can get is, is spreading out. That's just one driver, which is the climate change. Um, this is work from Paul Whitehead, which is looking at potential um, changing agricultural scenarios in a, uh, in a world in which um, there is increasing demand for ag agricultural products. Um, and uh, so looking at future scenarios in which there's uh, an increasingly intensive use of agricultural land in the Thames, and that will have its consequences. Um, this is some work I've been doing with a, uh, a PhD student um, looking at energy demand for water um, in the UK under a whole range of different energy generation technologies um, and some different energy su supply scenarios. And um, in particular, if, we, if, if we're going um, uh, nuclear, um, then we needn't worry about um, energy demand for water because this is all taking place on the coast. Um, if uh, uh, things are moving 
generally in the right direction in terms of energy demand for water. But if we go down a, a high CCS route, high CCS uses a lot of fresh water. Um, and so that will have be another significant driver in terms of our water abstractions. And what this enables us to do, again in terms of this same metric of what's the probability of exceeding our target for water shortages, let's have a look at what the effect of population growth is from, uh, from a no-growth scenario up to scenarios of 0.25% per annum, 0.5, 0.75. What are the effects of different agricultural scenarios? This is an increasing demand for horticultural crops. This is actually halving irrigation water demand. doesn't make a huge amount of difference if you halve the wa water demand because there isn't a great deal of irrigation water demand in the Thames catchment at <coughs> the moment anyway. But uh, if you go to high-value horticultural crops, that has a significant effect on when we start bumping through this threshold target for the frequency of shortages. And then this also enables us to play games with what, what are the potential responses on the demand side in terms of leakage reduction, on the supply side in terms of uh, reservoirs desalination. Um, and this one here is looking at uh, how much has the desalination plant done to push into the future this point when the, uh, the frequency of shortages begins to go past its current target. Um, and the final, I think, and, and really very important reason why we need to be beginning to think in these simulation-based terms for water resources planning is what's on the agenda with respect to abstraction reform. So um, in uh, the water bill and some of the evidence which supported that, like the Environment Agency's Case for Change document, um, a, a case has been made for really quite radical reform of abstraction arrangements in order to deal with the um, over-abstraction um, that occurs in many catchments and um, to provide more flexibility going into the future and to provide uh, arrangements which will enable um, water trading at one form or another. And people who are regulars at these seminars will have heard a lot about the Murray-Darling and what's been going on in, in, in relation to water trading there. And the Environment Agency, DEFRA, are looking very carefully at um, possibilities for water trading in this country. And if we're going to evaluate the potential effectiveness of instruments like um, water trading, then we need analysis and simulation platforms which can actually sh test what the ways in which those instruments might pan out in practice. And again, the way in which things are set up at the moment um, don't enable us to do that at all well. So, um, let me wrap up there. Um, and you'll, you'll have, have uh, understood that what this boils down to um, in the end is, is uh, all about trade-offs. Um, trade-offs between cost and risk, um, trade-offs between um, the different demands for water that are depicted here. Um, in, in terms of uh, municipal water supplies, industry, agriculture, um, and the environment. Um, 
And we need to move towards having a much more explicit understanding of uh, what the potential impacts might be um, for those uh, different demands for water in future. Uh, what are the probabilities of different levels of impact occurring and what are the benefits of risk reduction? Um, and also we need to, to, to understand much more clearly um, what should we be doing now and what, in a sense, which John was also referring to, um, what might it be perfectly rational to um, delay and wait to uh, acquire more information? And I think if there's, there's a take-home message at all, um, it is that we need to be getting a lot better at this. I mean, the, and the same message has come through um, yesterday in relation to High Speed 2, that basically we need to get better at appraising important decisions. They had four shots at it with High Speed 2 um, in terms of come up with an argument, what are the costs and what are the benefits? Um, and um, maybe they've got there, maybe they haven't. But I think there's a, there's a similar set of arguments around water resources planning in this country as well. Thank you. <laughs>